0: But we do ask, is poetry relevant? We never ask, is physics relevant nowadays? Is math relevant? We never really ask, is, is football relevant? Or what's the big game in Seton Hall? Basketball. Basketball, that's really yeah. what i meant to say. I mean, basketball in particular. Now, there's a game.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Bucino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode.
2: Welcome, everybody. My name is Andrea Hebel. I am a freshman diplomacy major and a student in the Bacino Leadership Institute, and today I will be your host. For this episode, we are thrilled to have Paul Muldoon as our guest. Muldoon is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet who has published 14 full length poetry collections, as well as countless other pieces of writing. Born in Northern Ireland, he studied at Queens University in Belfast and worked as a producer for the BBC until becoming a freelance writer in the mid 1980s. He was the poetry editor of the New Yorker from 2007 to 2017 and has served as a professor of poetry at both Oxford University and Princeton University. And he currently occupies the Howard G.B. Clark Twenty-one chair in the Humanities at Princeton. He has been described by the Times Literary Supplement as the most significant English language poet born since the Second World War. Hall, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great to be involved with Seton Hall. Uh, (laughs) Seton Hall is uh, is a very important place for me. So thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. So my first question for you is just what inspired you to start writing poetry?
0: You know, I started writing poetry as a teenager, and um, I started, like many writers, with the encouragement of a teacher. So one of my teachers thought that I had something, whatever it was, I'm not sure what it was, and he encouraged me to keep going. And uh, I think this is an aspect of uh, most writers' lives, I think if you ask most writers, you'll find that somewhere in in their uh, earlier years, they've had a teacher who's helped them. And it's one of the things, of course, that I take very, hold very dear to my heart as a teacher myself. I, I feel very responsible t- towards my students and to try to get them as uh, to, to do as best they possibly can, you know.
2: So when you're writing poetry, what are some of your biggest kind of sources of information for subject material?
0: You know, it can be anything at all. It may be something I've noticed in the um, natural world. Um, the other day I wrote a little poem about a chipmunk and I likened it to one of those hot rod, those hot rod cars with the stripes along the side, just fresh out of the, uh, the, the paint shop. So something that uh, has one look as if for the first time uh, at the world, it may be a phrase, it may be just a, a word that the, the meaning of which has never quite been clear to me or it's never struck me what what a word might mean so um, you know I start with something like that I usually start from a place of innocence and ignorance never really know what I'm doing and uh, I hope to (laughs) to discover something along the way and that that's what most writing is about I believe it's about discovery it's about revelation of some sort
2: that's so interesting to hear And kind of going along with that, what does your creative process look like when you're kind of crafting a poem or any other type of work that you're working on?
0: Well, it looks like me uh, getting up uh, at 5 a.m. more often than not. And uh, as an older person, that's the time of day when uh, I'm at my best, such as it is. I'm never sure if I'm ever at my best, actually. But it's the time at which I'm most likely to be most compass, you know, and I just know that from experience. So I spend, you know, a couple of hours in the, early in the morning, winter and summer, um, doing a bit of scribbling, seeing, what, seeing what's, you know, what's cooking. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's basically uh, what it looks like. And of course, as I'm sure you've often heard, all the work goes into making it look as if no work went into it. I'm sure that's true of everything. It's true of the podcast and it's true of the poem. You know, everything that uh, is going on behind the scenes, as it were, is not immediately evident to the uh, person listening to the podcast or reading the poem.
2: So kind of going along with that, I know you've, you've written poetry, obviously, but I know you've also written children's books, opera librettos, song lyrics, all sorts of other types of writing. What kind of similarities have you found between these mediums and how do you kind of change your thought process going into it when you're changing your audience and your medium?
0: First of all, I try not to think very much. That may seem strange, particularly in the context of a university and as a university teacher myself, but actually I try not to overthink things. I try to get to a point where um, unthinking, right, unknowing, is is the uh, is the key i mean it's not as if uh, you know I, I leave my intellectual capacity behind me or it's not that i leave it out of the picture but it's not what's foregrounded what's foregrounded is uh, the um unconscious rather than the conscious mind so depending on which of those uh, genres or forms or modes <coughs> i might be involved with um, you know, it's uh, each has a slightly different uh, emphasis. You know, when I've tried to write song lyrics, for example, or indeed to try uh, tried to write uh, opera libretti. You know, one of the great things about both the song and the, the opera libretti is, of course, the capacity of being right out there and, you know, saying, I love you so much. I can't tell you how much I love you well some days maybe not a little bit i'm not entirely sure but basically on balance i love you and you know to the the kind of direct the directness of that and the openness of that and the immediacy of that are very important components uh, in in anything involved with song which is not to say that they're not elements of what we think of as the poem, or what we should really more accurately think of as the verse. It's a component that is absolutely to the fore in, uh, in the songwriting business. And one of the strange things about the songwriting business, for example, is that it's always dealing in what is incomplete, right? A song will never quite be at its uh, best unless it has a musical component, It's, it's missing something on the page, there's always something that's left out. And to learn how to leave things out is actually a big, uh, that's a big challenge for me and I think many writers, because our impulse is to finish everything off and to, to complete everything. And in the poetry business, for example, to, to make sure that everything is just so. And uh, the, the, the paradox is that leaving something out is, is actually more difficult when one is in that frame of mind, when one has that mindset. So anyway, um, those, uh, and then, of course, I write lectures, essays, whatever one might call them. And that's a whole other uh, business also. Though, mind you, then I've tried to allow uh, the innocence and the ignorance that I was describing earlier on to be uh, dominant also. Um, So the, the lectures that I've always enjoyed, you know, when I'm on the receiving end of them. Are ones in which it's quite clear that the person who has discovered something, right? The lecturer has herself or himself or themselves discovered something along the way. So anyway, uh, that's uh, that's uh, something I try to do there too.
2: So kind of shifting from more of your writing to your career. What was it like going from having a career, a structured career with the BBC, and then? leaving that to go into freelance work. Can you kind of describe that transition to me a little bit?
0: Well, you know, I worked for the BBC, which, of course, uh, is a great institution, um, one of the great broadcasting institutions of the world. And I'd worked in radio most of the 13 years I was there, though I did a bit of television at the end. So I was trained as a radio producer, and I was trained uh, to direct and produce television films so it was a lot of fun but it was also uh, a little hair raising as I'm sure you found yourself even in the the podcasting business you know is is the person going to show up for example you know Um, are they going to um, is it going to rain tomorrow if one's in the film business and you know so I used to wake up in the middle of the night worrying about rain and um, you know it's a Film in particular is, it's, uh, it's, it's really one compromise after another. Um, that's perhaps true of most activities, but it's certainly true of that activity. So I came to a point basically where I realised that I wasn't quite, I wasn't going to be able to write my poems just to, to the extent that I felt I should you know, I'd always felt that was my main role as it sounds a bit corny, it sounds a bit self regarding or something. But that's that's what I that's the thing that's most you know most interesting to me. and uh, it's not to say that other aspects of my life are not interesting. but it's the thing that I really live for. So I felt that I, I kind of had to make a break. So I gave up a very good job. I got up one day and said, that's it, you know, which has been an extremely important moment for me in my life. And I've talked to other people over the years who have given up, you know, particularly great jobs, jobs they love. Most people aren't lucky enough to have jobs they love. Most people moan and sigh and talk talk about it being Monday, you know, when you ask them how they're doing. Uh, I never really felt that, and that made it even more pronounced, I suppose one would say. When I decided to to chuck it in and and kind of try something else, or maybe maybe even try nothing for a while, I'm a great believer in doing nothing <laughs> every so often. Indeed, I encourage my students to do nothing, and they once or twice they've said to me, you know, Professor Muldoon, nobody has ever said that to me. Uh, to which I say, well, there there you are, I'm saying it to you. So, uh, you know, to, to have the strength to be able, or, you know, it may be strength, it may be courage, it may be foolhardiness, who knows what it is, but to be able to say, you know what, I can leave that behind me. If I'm any good at what I do, I'll always be able to go back to it. It's not never quite as simple as that, of course. But, um, you know, it's hard to go back to things. You can't really sort of give up a job and sort of turn up the next week and say, excuse me, will you take me back? But it's, it's meant somehow that I've, uh, I've, never, I've never worried too much about, about what I do. And, in fact, my father was a great exemplar in that regard. He was a guy, you know, he was barely educated. He could barely write his name. And he managed he managed. He did perfectly well, you know. He did a bit of this and he did a bit of that. He kept a few pigs. He kept a few cattle. You know, he grew a few vegetables. He was a truck farmer. Uh, he would have done very well in New Jersey uh, nice. at one point anyway. But he, uh, you know, he sort of he got through. And I, I always feel, you know, and most of us get through. And we put so much, much store in, uh, you know, getting through with honors and, uh, you know, with all all the, the, the bells and whistles. Which is not to say that I, that I denigrate anyone who wants to do well. That's fine. But there are other things in the world, too. There are other things in life.
2: Obviously, too, this mentality has helped you find great success in your career. You're a very decorated poet. Which one of your awards would you say you're the most proud of?
0: You know, it's you know it's such, it's so interesting to hear you say that, decorated. I've never heard, never been described, I think, in those terms. But, you know, it is interesting. It's an interesting word. It's, it goes back, I suppose, to, uh, you know, war service. Or, I mean, the truth of the matter is that people who are decorated for valor or, you know, for saving someone's life or whatever, that, that's a real decoration. I mean, most of the decorations that poets have are kind of, frothy really i'd say or you're not really very meaningful i think by by comparison honestly to to people who you know put their lives on the line for example but of course uh, the other side of it is that i'm thrilled that a few people have thought that some of these poems were okay that's that's a big help you know to go back to the teacher it is it is everybody loves a bit of encouragement uh, including myself. I mean, one would be mad to suggest that it didn't mean something. Of course, it does. But, 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 one tries to keep it in perspective. You know, it means something. But there are other there are other things in my life that are more meaningful. Frankly, you know, I mean, for example, the fact that I have two kids, the fact that they're still speaking to me, <laughs> is is more meaningful to me than any of that. That's I'm quite. Uh, quite serious about that. So which means most, you know, honestly, the thing that means most to me in that regard is being able to get up in the morning and have another go and see, see if maybe, maybe today, maybe today, I'll write a, a really great poem. You know, a poem that's really going to knock everyone's everyone's socks off, starting with myself, right? So, it's the, the honestly, it's the anticipation of that that is most meaningful to me. It really is. I mean, I know like that the chances of it happening are probably slim, but I think that's probably what keeps me and what keeps many many writers going. I think you know.
2: That's really interesting. And kind of going off of that, if you had to, this is just more of a fun question. If you had to pick one poem of yours that, or one piece of work of yours that's your favorite, what would it be, and why?
0: Well, I mean, everybody says, well, that's like choosing between your children. It, uh, you know, honestly, uh, again, the next one I think is the one that that's that's the one I love. You know, I mean, I've some of them seem to have survived okay. I mean, I've been writing now for let's say, let's say 50, let's say 55 years or something like that. That's quite a long time. And a couple of them are probably over the years or maybe, you know, maybe still stand up a little bit. Poetry poems are very much of their moment. And very few of them survive even in their moment, right? Never mind beyond their moment and it's a it's a mysterious thing what what makes a poem uh, survive from uh, from one decade to the next or for 50 years or a couple of hundred years it's a mysterious thing and if we knew what it was we'd be, all be able to sit down and do it if we had if we had the key to that you know if you knew what what exactly what it took to write a poem like Elizabeth Bishop's poem, The Fish, for example, or John Donne's poem, The Flea, or Eliot's The Wasteland, or a poem by Emily Dickinson, right? If one knew how to do it, well, there'd be a a lot more of it around, and it's rare.
2: Kind of going off of that aspect, I feel, especially as someone, I recently have graduated high school, I'm a freshman in college, and I know, especially looking back at my high school career, poetry was often something that was kind of overlooked in a way by a lot of, by a lot of students, especially. So what do you kind of think is the value and the importance of poetry, especially to young people in a, in a modern society? How do you feel that poetry is still relevant, if that makes sense?
0: Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a question that, you know, we keep asking. <laughs> You know, we never ask, is physics relevant nowadays? Is math relevant? We never really ask, is, is football relevant? But we do ask, is poetry relevant? Um, I think, you know, frankly, a lot of it goes back to the school in which it, not only are students afraid of it, um, but actually teachers are afraid of it. And the two kind of support each other in being afraid of it. It's the last thing that teachers want to look at it's not such a feature of public exams anymore I believe you know you don't really you don't so far as I know you don't really ever have to write about a poem in a in an exam I think at least not a public one so um, we we tend to we tend to think of it as something that's kind of not quite for us and uh, the fact of the matter is if we just open ourselves to it expose ourselves to it and um, there's there's plenty uh, to be found there that is indeed for us and uh, that r- relates to our lives and uh, helps us uh, to make sense of our lives, no less, by the way, than, than uh, physics or math or, <clears throat> or maybe even football. Or what's the big game in Seton Hall? Basketball. (laughs) Basketball. That's really what I meant to say. I mean, basketball in particular. No, there's a game.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely interesting. I know I personally definitely took me a while to really gain an appreciation for poetry, but the more I looked at it kind of as I got older, the more I definitely gained an appreciation for it.
0: But you know, that's absolutely right. You have to be you have to have some experience of a thing to gain appreciation of it. I mean, the examples I often use are, um, like I said, music. We gain an appreciation of music by listening to it day in, day out, on our little buds, right? So we're extremely sophisticated in how to listen to music. We're extremely sophisticated in how to watch movies. I mean, I've been watching something on television with my wife, and, I mean, it's one of, the, it's one of these shows that has kind of flashbacks within flashbacks and... I mean, it's so complex. I mean, every so often I do say it, or wait a minute, are we in the present here or what? But pretty much, we're pretty much, um, we've pretty much developed a capacity to take quite complex visual signals, right? And uh, then we sort of think about poetry and uh, we sort of expect to go into a poem from a standing start. We, we need to, you know, expose ourselves to it a little bit more. We have to learn. And we feel somehow that we shouldn't have to learn, right? Because it's just words, right? After all. But it's not quite as simple as that. And if we thought about it for, for more than a few seconds, I think we'd realize that. It's great to see, I mean, I noticed, for example, the New York Times has a poem, at least one poem a week in its columns. And that's a great thing. Poetry should be, uh, I think, it should either be banned. So you shouldn't be allowed to read it, right? And then people get interested. in it, Or it should be such a commonplace that we just sort of take it in our stride. And we think, eh, you know, it's just a poem.
2: Thank you so much. That was so, such a valuable insight. That was really interesting. In your career as a writer and as a professor, what are some ways that you see leadership skills utilized?
0: You know, I have been, done a little bit of leading, um, You know, I think the idea of leading by example is an an important one. I mean, we've heard that uh, again and again, I think to go back to the decoration that we were talking about, you know, some of the great uh, generals um, in history, I mean, leaving aside, you know, I'm not a militaristic person, but just taking that, I mean, there is, there are certain parallels, I suppose, between any kind of uh, administration or management and, and military leadership think of alexander the great for example renowned for uh, sort of being with his troops at all you know morning noon and night out there not above them i think one of the great risks we l- run i suppose as leaders uh, or indeed as in any department where we begin to imagine we're above the rest of the, the people around us. Uh, that's a very dangerous business, I think, you know? Uh, it's not that we, I mean, obviously that we, we do need uh, people to be in charge of some things, to take responsibility for things. Taking responsibility is also a major, a major component in uh, leadership, you know? You know, leaders are, uh, are never um, praised when everything's going well. But they're certainly denigrated uh, when things start going badly and blamed when things start going badly and there may be some um, validity in that but uh, you know i suppose i think to to set an example is is the way to go yeah I, i i'd like to see a bit more of that
2: kind of looking at your career as a whole looking at your career as a poet as a professor if you could change any aspect of, of your career, would you and what would it be?
0: I mean, this may sound it's certainly not because I'm satisfied or self-satisfied, but honestly, I there's nothing I'd change. I, I've kind of I've lived, I think, a blessed life. You know, I get up in the morning honestly and I'm 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 very happy. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm happy with the state of the nation in all respects. I'm not happy with, you know, major injustices in our society. I'm not happy with that, um, not at all. But I, you know, in terms of have, having a sense of fulfillment in what I do and feeling in a very modest way uh, that one is actually you know, sort of doing something that might be meaningful in, in the way that a teacher may, I think, I, that 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 is important to me and I I love it I've never ever gone to work in any of my jobs as a teacher as a radio producer TV producer I don't I've never gone thinking oh I cannot bear this I don't want to be doing this you know
2: do you have any kind of recommendations of books that you like to read or podcasts that you like to listen to just to kind of help anyone who's interested in in becoming a better leader or having a working in a creative field? Do you have any suggestions?
0: You know, one of my favorite books in this regard, I'm not a big podcast listener. To, I'm terribly sorry to have to tell you that. <laughs> um, I uh, One of the books that's been most meaningful to me really over the years and which I sometimes assign to students is is a book called Zen in the Art of Archery. It's a strange little book. First of all, it's a little book. You can read it in about probably an hour, which is always a good thing. Uh, It's a book by um, a German philosopher called Jürgen Herrigal. And he was someone who went off to study in Japan with a Zen archer, a master archer. And this was someone who could hit a bullseye in, in the middle of the night, pitch darkness or blindfold. He could pick up his bow, draw it and release the arrow and it hit the bull's eye no matter of what. How did he do that is what uh, the, philosopher, the German philosopher is trying to uh, figure out. And of course, what he figures out when the, the master uh, teaches him uh, really is that uh, it's only when he accepts that he has no real role in that that it's only when he allows the arrow uh, to find its own way. It sounds a bit corny. Uh, only then, when it shoots and it hits, only then uh, will, will, uh, will that, you know, when he gives himself over to that, only then will it, will that happen. And that's a big article of faith, I'd say, for me, as a, as a writer, it sounds very strange, I know, but it's really, we're talking about uh, a form of inspiration. Um, most writers feel that they're in command and they want to be in command to go back to leadership. I don't feel that at all. And uh, the poets I enjoy most are poets who um, I think have given up notions of being in charge They've given themselves over to something else, right? And however weird it might sound, particularly in our modern era, they've given themselves over to I mean, there's a spiritual aspect to this, to some higher force, some other force. It could be just the language. You know, we don't have to get involved even talk talk of a godhead or anything. Just just a force beyond them that is bigger and frankly better than they are. So that's that's the key to me. And, um, you know, I think people, I, I know people think I'm slightly crazy when I say that, but that's fine, I don't mind. I can deal with that.
2: That sounds like a really interesting read. I'll definitely have to check that out. And then one final question for you. What advice do you have for anyone who's looking to pursue a career in a writing field or any other kind of creative field?
0: To pursue a career, <clears throat> you know, I'd say, the idea of a career in the poetry field is just it's 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 difficult you know you unfortunately you cannot make people like what you do i mean even if it's good lots of good poets have um, been overlooked over the over the decades and the centuries you know so one thing i'd say is it's not necessarily a fair business you know i'd like to think one would very much like to think that, you know, quality will shine through. And actually, I think maybe in this modern era where so much of it, you know, very few people are sitting around in isolation, uh, not not having their poems read. However, there's so much of it out there that actually ma- makes it hard sometimes to find. <clears throat> we just have to work through um, so much to sort of get to the ore in the rock. So I would say, um, be prepared to um, not be accepted immediately. And the one piece of advice, and, and to do it for oneself, really. You know, it's lovely if someone else takes notice, but honestly, I think the main thing is to do it for oneself, for what one gets out of it, oneself. That's not meant to be selfish. It's just meant to be uh, accurate as to, as to you know how, how things are in the world. The other piece of advice that an old uh, poet I knew years ago in Ireland <laughs> uh, gave all of us, and which I think is really great, is he says, you know, if you go into the poetry business, it's nobody's fault but your own, <laughs> right? Don't expect anything. When you start expecting things, then, then you're in trouble.
2: That's definitely, definitely very good advice. That is all the time that we have for today, but Paul Muldoon, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. For all of our listeners, be sure to tune in next week. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And go Seton Hall.
2: On behalf of everyone
1: at the Bucino Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter, at shuleadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.